Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to talk about storytelling, at least in the beginning, and, and just try to present the whole construct of, 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 of telling a story in maybe, maybe a, a way that we, we haven't really thought about it before. Generally speaking, we think of um, storytelling as, as entertainment, and uh, there's, there's a logic to that. You know, there are great stories. People pay to see stories. They'll go to the movies. A movie is a story. They'll watch TV shows. TV shows are stories. Books are stories. You know, you, you have an, an, an interesting uh, event in your life. You know, people really want to hear it. You go on a trip. How was your trip? Every, everything is stories. But you know something? God loves stories. In fact, Breshis, most of the Torah, the book of Genesis, it's, it's mostly stories, which is, which is an amazing thing. So there's something about the agency of stories, which is not just entertainment. There's something deeper going on just through the, just the DNA of what a story is. So I want to get into that a little bit more. Talk about what the power of a story is. And this will connect to what a, the, the power of a role model is. Um, a person who embodies a certain attribute. And you'll see as we have a chance to develop these thoughts how these things will connect. So when it comes to, when it comes to storytelling, you have to understand something. Every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Okay? That's actually one of the crazily deep things about the first word of the Torah itself. The first word of the Torah is breishis. And as we've said many times, the Zohar says that the entire Torah is contained within the word breishis, right? Because everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds and microcosms within microcosms. And then all of Breshis is in, within the first letter of Breshis, within the base of Breshis. But anyway, let's just think about this word Breshis for a moment. Um, it's the sort of the King James translation is um, in the beginning, but that's actually not a Torah translation. Uh, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that a better translation is out of beginnings, God created the world, which is very deep and fascinating, but but not for now to explore. But I heard Rabbi Tat say something just so, so epic, which is the fact that the Torah begins with the word beginning implies within that word itself that there's a middle and an end. In other words, the, the Torah is not just giving you a snapshot of what happened X thousand or millions or billions of years ago. And that's what it means, out of beginnings or in the beginning. But rather, you're being told from the very beginning that this is a process that you're in right now. That the world is evolving towards something. And as we've said, just you can't understand reality without understanding this, which is that the world is not finished yet. And not only is the world not finished yet, but even more significantly, God had the end in mind before he even began the process of the beginning. The end of mind being, of course, a world of perfection. Why would God create an imperfect world? Why would a good God create an imperfect world with suffering? The answer is he wouldn't, but you see that he has. Why? Because it's not done yet. In other words, what we have before us yet is not the full vision that God is putting into effect and which God had in mind from the very, very outset. As we said a few weeks ago, one way of putting this into perspective, just how long it's taking. You know, one of our articles of faith, you know, so I, I was talking with someone the other day and they said, do, do I have to believe in Mashiach? Meaning to say, do I have to believe that the world is actually heading toward perfection? You know, you know we, we get a little bit confused. When we talk about Mashiach, a lot of times the emphasis is on the person himself. And of course, the, the person himself will be very, very great. And the Rambam gives a list of halachas as to who he is and, and all the certain things that it's like a checklist. If the person doesn't meet this checklist, they are not Mashiach, even if they are a very great person, right? All the Jews have to be gathered to Israel, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the base of Migdash has to be rebuilt. All these things have to be done. If you can't list that on your resume, you could be very great. You're not Mashiach, Okay. 
But Mashiach, aside for a moment, and again, no disrespect to this great person who will be a descendant of King David, we're really talking about an era. We're talking about the evolving of, of humanity and civilization and the world itself. That's the essence. And it's absolutely 10,000% a mitzvah and an article of faith to believe that this is the process that we're in right now. This is Judaism. This is Judaism 101. This is normative Judaism. Um, so that's important. Now, a lot of people, I just want to kind of, while we're on the subject, I just want to give a word of advice because this person was sharing with me and he's a very, very dedicated, very sincere person, right? He said to me, well, you know, so many times they say Mashiach is going to come and then Mashiach didn't come. And it's like you're dangling some candy in front of a child and the child is so excited and then you take it away. And at a certain point, how is a person supposed to feel except whatever? Just, you know what, not for me. Let's just keep going. So I think that that state of mind, being burnt out, if you will, let's just call it being burnt out. Um, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, I saw, I heard this phrase, it's kind of a heartbreaking phrase, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a bad one. Um, which is there were a number of natural disasters at this time a, a few years back. Unfortunately, you know, you, you always keep on hearing about them. But this was a, 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 an especially close series of epic natural disasters around the world. And there were all sorts of campaigns to give money and things like this for it. And then I guess they found that people were giving less money because... And they used this phrase, which was compassion fatigue. And I thought that that was very interesting. So I think, just to borrow that phrase, I think that a lot of people have gotten Mashiach fatigue. And they don't, they don't know how to wrap their mind around it, because their heart tells them yes, but this process has been so exhausting and enervating that they don't really know what to do with it. So let me just suggest a strategy in terms of moving forward with this, where you can have 10,000% belief in this era that's coming, in Mashiach and everything like that, and at the same time, insulate yourself from Mashiach fatigue. And that's just a tiny adjustment, just like a 2% adjustment in the way we think about it. And what I'd like to suggest, just as background for this, is one of the, for me, one of the most searing bits of Torah that I've ever heard. Uh, from Reb Shlomo, he said in the name of the Zohar about the, uh, the Miraglim, the, the spies, when they, they went to Israel to bring back a report about Israel. Now, you know, all of history went off the rails with this. More so, actually, than the sin of the golden calf. It's like, somehow this is less well known, but, but this caused the entire generation to die out in the desert. We were basically just a few days from entering into Israel. This created the 40-year wandering in the desert, the bad report that the spies brought back about the land of Israel, and a whole generation had to die out. And as a further consequence, Moshe himself, Moses, did not lead the children of Israel into the land, which would have been an epic sort of messianic thing right there. So all sorts of things change in an extremely, extremely significant way because of them. So, so the way Reb Shlomo phrased him, he said that the spies who, when, at least at the time that they left on their trip, were all very holy people, very, very righteous people. They looked into the land, and then they looked into, and I always remember this as, uh, as uh, Reb Shlomo's uh, phraseology. He says they looked into the, the Jewish people's heavenly bank account. And they saw that the Jewish people did not have enough in their heavenly bank account, meaning to say, schusim, mitzvahs, merit, in order to deserve the, the great goodness of the land. And so as such, they said, you know, we can't 
we can't make this transaction because we, we are not worthy of the land. Now listen to what Reb Shlomo said, a, a life-changing words. He said, what they didn't see is that God could give it to us as a gift. This is a very major, major, major idea. Major idea. You see, because sometimes a person will say, like, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And you know what? You may not be worthy. <laughs> you know, it may not be just like great modesty. You may actually not be worthy. But maybe Hashem wants to give it to you as a gift. That's, that's, that's also possible. And, and that, changes, that changes everything. And what you realize from this, just as an extension of this, is that the goodness of Mashiach is so great that how could we actually ever be worthy of that? If you think about it, it doesn't make any sense that we could ever be worthy of that. It's too great. Which means that if Hashem has already promised that He's going to bring it, that means that the only way that logically pans out is if God gives it to us as a gift. You see, so, so how does that help? How does knowing that help? Because you say, okay, well look, you say, God can bring us a gift. <laughs> in other words, in other words, nothing has to correlate. I don't have to see like people like skipping down the street and you know like waving rainbow banners and things like that. I, I don't I don't need to see everyone hugging and kissing to say, ah, we finally got into the era of Mashiach. God can just bring it. It doesn't have to correlate necessarily with what our eyes see in terms of um, how well people are getting along. And I'll give you a further support for that. The Shemishmul, the son-in-law of the uh, Katska Rebbe, um, said the following, which is that you have to understand that all of the merit of all the previous generations leading up to us has been cumulative, meaning to say it hasn't gone away. Meaning to say that when you're doing another mitzvah, you're not just doing another mitzvah on the reality that your eyes can see in the society that you read about in the newspaper. There's another tally going on, which is the greater reality, which is this giant, mountainous, cosmic pile of mitzvahs that the Jewish people in the world has done over thousands of years. And with that in mind, you can understand now the reality, the here and now reality of what the Rambam says that just one more mitzvah, just the next mitzvah could be the thing that actually triggers the whole thing. So again, what's, what's so significant about that is it's not correlating with the world that your eyes are seeing necessarily, but it's the greater reality of actually what's there. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because how could it be when, when you do something like a mitzvah, that's forever. So how could there be an expiration date on that? There's no expiration date on a mitzvah. Doesn't, it's not like an apple that rots. It's forever. So, so again, we're trying to combat Mashiach fatigue here. So let's just review for a moment. Knowing that it can come as a gift. Knowing that society doesn't have to be in any particular place of perfection in order for it to come. Knowing that truly, any mitzvah can actually bring it. I heard with my own ears, Reb Shalomo say more than once, he said, how do you know it's not going to be the prayer of a drunkard lying on the sidewalk that will bring Mashiach? How do we know? And it's absolutely consistent with everything that we've been saying up until now. Right? But there's more to it. You see... Rabbi Wolfson said, in terms of trying to understand how it could be that Mashiach has been forecasted many times in Jewish history by very, very great tzaddikim, very great holy people, and it hasn't come, well, how do you wrap your mind around that? So Rabbi Wolfson gives a very, very direct, very clear answer. He says, those are times that it could have come. In other words, the, 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 the tzaddik was not wrong in having seen or sensed an opening, a great opening, they were correct. Happens to be that we, we didn't have the merit at that point. 
or, or it wouldn't have been good for us, however we're to learn it at that point. So there were these windows that were seen by great tzaddikim, but happens to be that the generation and the leader of the generation have to be in sync. That's, that's very important. Um, we should also know there's a Gemara where one of the sages of the Gemara sees Eliyahu Hanavi, who announces the arrival of Mashiach, Elijah the prophet, and, and this, this sage says, you know, my master, when is, when, is, when is the great day going to arrive? When is Mashiach going to come? And Eliyahu tells him, today. And he runs to his village and he starts yelling, Mashiach is coming today, it's coming, you prepare yourself, everything like that. The day ends, Mashiach doesn't come. And then he sees Eliyahu, he goes back, he sees Eliyahu, and he says, what are you doing? You told me it was coming today. And he says, it can come any day. Any day it can come. You see, it's been... Every generation has someone who could be Mashiach. And I know there's always a debate once you hear that, if you're not familiar with that concept, does he know? (laughs) You know what? What difference does it make? (laughs) He'll know when he needs to know. (laughs) One of my my favorite stories ever is... uh, and we'll get back to storytelling, by the way. One of my favorite stories ever is uh, that uh, there was a Fabrengen, you know, a big sort of like gathering at uh, 770 in Crown Heights, uh, and the Lubavitcher Hasidim were singing, and the Rebbe was still alive at the time, and it was Shabbos Day. Now there's a Masora, there's a tradition from the Gomorrah that Mashiach is not coming on Shabbos. Okay? For whatever reason. Okay? So... So they're all singing, it's Shabbos Day, and they're all singing, we want Mashiach now, we don't want to wait. And someone came up to the Rebbe and said, you know, we, everybody knows, today's Shabbos, it says in the Gemara that Mashiach doesn't come on Shabbos, so why are we singing this? And the Rebbe says, let Mashiach come on Shabbos, and when he comes, he can explain how he came on Shabbos. <laughs> So, I love that because, you know, again, if, whatever God wants to do, you know, whatever God wants to do. So, so it's, it's good. It's good. Um, so, so the potential of, 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 of Mashiach in the generation is an ongoing thing. So when Eliyahu Hanavi says that Mashiach can come any day, that's really true. The, the infrastructure for Mashiach to arrive is always in place. So now you realize that Mashiach can come any day. And God can bring him whenever God wants. And, and I think that, you know, using the Miraglim, as we said before, that we can never afford the great good, you know, you know mitzvah-wise, so to speak. In other words, we can never fully earn the great goodness of Mashiach, I don't think. Um... So that when God brings them, it's not us who's brought them anyway. In other words, we have to work as hard as we can to be the best people we can. But the idea that we are bringing him, I mean, it just seems a little bit off. Because here's, here's the problem. Let me just finish that thought for you. If we are bringing him and he is not coming, then we are not bringing him. Do you understand? And if we are not bringing him over and over, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, voila, Mashiach fatigue. (laughs) But if you understand, God can bring him whenever he wants, and we have to do our best job anyway, no matter what. I mean, Mashiach, no Mashiach, whatever it is, we have a set of instructions. We have to do the best job we can to be the best people we can. Well, that also correlates with Doing your best to bring Mashiach. In other words, you're going to be doing that regardless. Do you understand? If you're doing your best job, which you have to be doing anyway. So you just take the pressure off yourself. You put it back where it belongs on God, who's bringing it anyway. And I think that this is a way to move on and to still maintain complete belief that Mashiach, listen to the subtlety of this language, that Mashiach can come any day. See, 
See, a lot of people do the pressure of, he is coming today. He can come today. He can come right now. And that's not trying to get out of belief in his coming. No, this is allowing us to have the sustainability to continue to believe with all of our heart. Do you understand? This is so we can believe with a full heart on an ongoing basis. Okay. So now let's get back to this idea of storytelling. So the way we got onto the subject is I was telling you that the entire world is a story being told because the very first word of the Torah, which contains the whole Torah, is in the beginning, right? Or with beginnings, out of beginnings. And the word beginning implies middle and an end. So you know that you're in a story right now, and this is the story. Mashiach is the story that, that we're telling. That, that's, that is what's going on. Okay. Now, here's the thing about stories. Let's get back into the actual DNA of why, or I would like to suggest this, my analysis, why stories are so powerful. On one level. You see... Time takes a long time. (laughs) It's kind of funny, right? Time takes a long time. Like, like growing up. Grow, you know, you know. One of the axioms I came up with one time is, you know, when you watch other people's kids grow up, it's like you grew up so fast, right? But ask them if they grew up so fast. You know, it's like. Time flies when it isn't you. You know, when it's you, it takes a long time. When it's other people, it's like, oh. So, so time takes a long time. And, you know, when you, when you think of, like, the life of great people, there are years and years, like, they, they have all these hardships and these setbacks, and then they, all these things, and then they, they overcome them, and then it's amazing and it's inspiring and everything like that. And I can tell you a story like that in a few minutes. But, but I want you to take this very seriously. Those few minutes that I'm telling you those, that story in, do you understand it took years and years and years to take place? Can we just... I'm going to say that again because this is kind of the essence of what I'm getting to. I really want you to appreciate that dynamic. Because if you don't get that dynamic, you're not going to understand what I'm saying. I can tell you a story about someone's life, a very inspiring story about someone's life that took decades for them to happen. And I can tell that story which took decades to happen in a few minutes. Do you know what that means? That means that, you know what stories are? Compressed time. Stories are compressed time. Now, if you think about it, that's a very rare, that's a very rare jewel, isn't it? Because time is like, time is like, we are chained to time. We are mortal and we're all going to, we should all live long to 120 in health and happiness. But we're all going to die because of time. (laughs) We are chained to time. Time is heavy. Can you imagine if I can give you this thing that shrinks time, (laughs) that allows you to control time and allows you to collapse it into a little nugget? Well, guess what? That's called a story. And so I can tell you a story about someone and now, you know, you don't have to go through years to benefit from the experience that they had. Because it's now miniature. Now, I'll tell you something far out. This is from a short story writer named Borges. Okay, you can look him up. B-O-R-G-E-S. He's a South American, he's an Argentinian. Pretty sure it's Argentine. You know, Buenos Aires is where? Brazil? Where is it? That's, okay, okay. He's in Buenos Aires. So that's Argent, Argent, Argentina. One of the greatest writers of the last, you know, hundred years. And what he would write, um, he's no longer with us, he would write um, 
these short stories, but they were basically meditations on infinity. <laughs> and he wasn't Jewish, but he, he studied Kabbalah. And one of his short story collections is actually called Aleph, right? Which is very interesting. But his stories are like mind-bending. They're, 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 they're amazing. They're amazing. In fact, I'll tell you a story about one of his stories, okay? But first, let me tell you the point. The point is, is that I'm talking about the compression of time, right? He, he made a story about these um, cartographers, right? It's a fancy word, map makers. These map makers who were making a map of this particular country and with a, uh, that it was going to correlate, you know how you have like um, one inch, let's say, on a map, yeah, will correlate to, I don't know, say a thousand miles, right? Because it's got to be very very small, very condensed, right? Because you're getting a big overview in a very small place. So his story was about these map makers who um, were making a map that had an exact one-to-one ratio with the region. <laughs> Do you understand? Do you get the joke? The map was the size of the country. <laughs> This is the opposite of what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the compression of something very large. And I don't even remember how the story goes, but I've never been able to get that idea out of my mind. A map that's the size of the country, is re- it's ridiculous. It's fantastic. It's fantastic, you know. But I'll tell you another story about one of his stories, because he, it was called... Um, Pierre Menard, author of Quixote. Okay? And this is an, also an amazing story, but to, I, I hope I'll do justice to it in, in, in saying it. You have to kind of think about it. It's, um, it's about a person who read the book Don Quixote at a young age. All right? Now, Don Quixote is one of the greatest works of literature. And, um, and anyway, it's a very long book very long book about, I'm just guessing, but maybe 500 pages. It's long, okay? And I think I remember reading years and years ago that Behind the Bible was the greatest bestseller in the world, at least at one point in history. A real classic, okay? So anyway, this person reads Don Quixote at a young age, never sees the book again. And when he's older, you ready for this? You got to think about this. When he's older, he decides to write the book Don Quixote. Not to, no, to write the book Don Quixote by Cervantes. To write the exact book. But he hasn't read it in, who knows, since he was a child. And he sets about to write it, and he puts like, I don't know, like years into it. Like, it's like, like polishing sentences and this and that and that. And at the very end of the process, he succeeds in having written Don Quixote by Cervantes. <laughs> Which is, if you think about it, the most incredible, I mean, almost an impossible, actually an impossible accomplishment. But what he has to show is just a book that you could like go to a bookstore and get off the shelf. Again, something like mind-bending and absurd, right? But he, through his own effort, and again, if you meditate on this idea later, you'll, you'll, it, it just unfolds into just um, amazingly absurd and wonderful. But he succeeds through his own creativity in creating something that already exists. <laughs> not, not just his own creativity, I don't want to overemphasize this, but I just want to make sure that I'm communicating through actual genius. <laughs> so, so what's the point? What's the story about the story? I, I met someone. I was on a show at the time. Uh, it was on Third Rock from the Sun. And there was someone on, on staff there who kind of wanted a... He was becoming interested in... in in, in Judaism and Torah. And so he'd come into my office and he'd, you know, ask me some questions and things like that. 
Anyway, he had hair down to his shoulders, and a year or two later, he moved to Jerusalem and became an Orthodox rabbi. <laughs> so, he really, uh, and continues to learn. He's a Talmud Chacham, really amazing, amazing. But I knew that something very, very, very special was taking place in terms of my relationship with him. Because after one of his first visits into my office, just to ask me some general questions, I thought to myself, oh, this guy's got to read Pierre Menard, author of Quixote, by Borges. He's got to read that story. So... I walked down the hall. I had never been into his office before. Okay? Sitting on his desk is a book by Borges. And there's a pencil stuck in the middle of the book on the, the title page in the middle of the book, Pierre Menard, author of Quixote. I had never been in his office, and he told me later that he didn't put that pencil in there on purpose. He just kind of just stuck it in there. And at that point, I said, this is a nace, this is a miracle, and something supernatural is happening right now between us. I knew. And so when I tell you what went on with him, um, I, I, I wasn't surprised. You know. So now let's deepen this conversation and I, I want to evolve it to the next level where I want to tell you now that we see how stories are compressed time where unlike that map maker who's making a one-to-one -one correspondence you don't have to live alongside this inspiring person's life in real time to understand the inspiring thing about them you can have it related to right like this is the idea of um you know, you can learn from your own mistakes, which we all have to do, but it's a very great level to learn from other people's mistakes. You know, that's this idea of, you know, compressed time, how you can benefit from compressed time, right? But again, I want to take this to the next level and talk about role models right now. What, why are, what is a role model, first of all? Excuse me. A role model is someone who embodies an attribute that you admire or, or that you um, aspire to, right? But, but now I want to put it into the language of what we've been discussing today. A role model is a living story. And again, we're defining the word story as compressed time. A role model is someone who has compressed time through the direction and the decisions that they decided to make in their life and brought them to you so that you can navigate based on their North Star. And you can go, okay, this is the direction this leads into, and this is the direction that leads into, and I see how this person made a choice that I may not have even have known that I'm going on this path, but now I see through his story or her story that I'm going on this path, and now I can make an adjustment based on that to achieve the goal that I want to achieve. You know, someone said something to me one time that I, I thought was fascinating. You know, I, I'm Jewish, obviously. And, um, you know, I was brought up, you know, Jewish continuity. You marry a Jewish girl so that, you know, Judaism can continue in the world, right? We love all people. All of us are God's children. But this is, you know, the path of our soul is Judaism. And to perpetuate that path, we want to bring Jewish children in the world. It's a, it's a, it's a natural thing. Every, every group would, would want to continue their own existence. This is how we continue our existence. It's not um, prejudice or anything like that. 
Like I say, we love all people and, and we're all God's children. But if we want to continue our soul path in the world, this is, this is how we bring ch- Jewish children into the world, by, by marrying a Jew. So, so someone told me, I said to myself, well, I'll marry a Jew. But, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't brought up religious and, you know, I, I wasn't very serious growing up and things like that. And I thought, okay, when it comes time to marrying someone, I'll make sure that I marry a Jew. But yeah, I can certainly date anyone and everyone, right? That's, that's fine. And then someone said to me, well, at a certain point in your life, you're going to marry whoever you're dating. <laughs> You know, like someone told me something and I, I apologies to the woman if, if this is horrific to you. If I were a woman, what I'm about to say would be horrific to me. But someone said to me, not, not in the name of the Torah, just as a societal observation, that who do men marry whoever they're dating when they decide they want to get married? Right? To me, the, the reason why I would find that horrific as a woman is because as a woman I would imagine that it's sort of like it should be a little bit more romantic than that. <laughs> I would hope it would be anyway. And of course, not all men are that way. But there is a certain reality, I think, from my own personal opinion, to, to, to that thing, that you, when you decide you want to get married, whoever you're dating, that's the person you're going to marry. So if you say, okay, I'm going to start dating whoever, you know, whoever it is, there's an excellent chance that you are going to fall in love with and then marry someone who is not Jewish. Even if you 100% said, I'm going to marry a Jewish woman. 100% I'm going to do that. But what can I do? I'm in love. I'm in love right now. You're going to tell me, and, and now once you're in love, anyone who tells you otherwise hates humanity and is a racist and prejudiced and all the rest and because you think differently at that moment because emotionally you have committed yourself to another reality. So you can't really think clearly at that moment. Or, or think the way you would have thought, say, just five years ago or before you met that person, perhaps. You know? So, so what, again, what is a role model? A role model is someone who is a living story. They have condensed the timeline for you to benefit from the decisions that they made so that you can redirect your life in whatever way necessary or continue with your life if you're already on that path but you just need more strength to stay on that path in order to accomplish whatever it is that you need to accomplish. So all of us are role models. This is, this is kind of the interesting thing. It doesn't mean that all of us are going to be invited to speak in front of you know, large audiences. But all of us are role models because, and I wish I could tell you who said this, I don't know, but it made such a big impression on me. All of us are telling stories through the life we live. And we're communicating, we're, we're telling stories to people. Right? That's why it's like, it really like freaks me out when, when I see someone take such a adamant stand on a certain issue and then they change their mind. And I'm talking about public figures. And especially when they take an adamant stand on something that seems very controversial. And then it gets a lot of press because it's controversial. And they've got a big name, so everyone wants to know what they're thinking about a certain subject. But when they change the mind, it hardly gets covered at all. I remember I, I, I saw something like that. It was some woman writer or celebrity or something like that where she said that just the idea of having children, not for me, it's never going to happen. I don't think anyone, you know what I mean? It's like, it's ridiculous. And it was such an empowering idea for so many people. But then I read like two, three years later, she said, oh yeah, I had a child and everything. And it, was, it was like hardly ever covered. But I'm sure there were people who were like, yes, you see that? Boyfriend, husband, I'm not doing it and I have support from this person. That's just one example. I've seen, you know, because I read headlines all the time. I'm cycling through headlines all the time. 
So I, I, I come across stories like these. And I, I see this fairly often, where people take very important or very strong stands on issues, and they influence people greatly. And then they change their mind, but that never gets the same amount of attention. I, in, in another way, it's just a related thought, not, not exactly the same thing, but if you read the Science Times and the New York Times, you'll see that they, they're coming out with things that are rewriting science all the time. But if you keep on reading, you'll see that there are follow-up articles that say, oh, no, actually, that, that wasn't right. <laughs> that wasn't right. Okay, look, that's the scientific process. Well, it just never gets... The, oh, that wasn't right, never gets the same love and attention as the alarming declaration. You know? So, so should we go on? Sure. Should we go on? Yeah. Okay. So what about the travel that we make in our own life? Okay, we're going to switch topics now. It's actually on the same topic, but going to go in a different direction right now. What about our lives as journeys? What about the story that we're telling? What about the world that we inhabit? So... The Parsha that we just read on Shabbos, Bechu Kosai, is, is, is fascinating. Like the, the, the dynamics of it are so fascinating. It's, it's the last Parsha of Sefer Vayikra, Leviticus, and then we head into Bamidbar, you know, the book of Numbers, which is filled with amazing stories. We're back to storytelling, by the way. You know, I just want to say one thing that kind of came to me on Shabbos, which is that, you know, Breshi's Genesis, mostly stories, or all stories. Shmos, Exodus, first half, all stories, epic stories, right? Leaving Egypt, the plagues, getting the Torah Mount Sinai, and then great amount of details about the construction of the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. Then the next book, Vayikra, almost all details. Now, let's just step back for a moment, because we're, we're finishing that book now. Um, about the offerings, bringing sacrifices and things like this, the korbonos. Um, so, so the narrative is, you know, basically we're slaves in Egypt and then God frees us and then God gives us the reason why he frees us in order for us to be a light unto the nations to get the, the Torah. And then we start getting all the details about the Mishkan, but why? in order to turn the entire world into a dwelling place for God. Now, God's already filling the whole world, but to reveal that the world is a dwelling place for him, okay? And now, what's this next book? That sounds like the end of the story. So, so I heard Rabbi Green say one time, he said, you know, the classic love story is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl at the end, right? So a lot of movies end with weddings, and he said, you know, that's when the movie ends, the curtains close. He goes, no, that, that's the part I'm interested in. Now that they have each other, how do they live together? <laughs> right? That's what I want to know. And so, so what is Sefer Vayikra? Like, we're out of Egypt. God gives us the Torah. God is our God. You know, we, we're turning the world into a dwelling place for him. Vayikra is Shekhinah maintenance. Right? How do we keep God's presence here? In other words, how, how do we maintain that relationship? And so here's the thought that I want to suggest, which is that the entire book is details because, you know what? Maintaining a relationship is in the details. Once you have each other, it's really not about that grand sweeping gesture like I rented a I know someone who proposed to his wife, he rented a Prince Charming costume, right? Right? Once you're married, (laughs) 
Not so much. <laughs> but did you call from the office sometime during the day to say, hi, how are things? Is there anything I can bring home? I'm thinking about you. That's the Prince Charming outfit at that moment. That's Shekhinah maintenance. That's maintaining the relationship in the details. It's big. It's still big. But it manifests itself in a completely different garb, which is quote-unquote details. But these are the little things that are the big things. Okay? Okay. So that's just a background on Vayikra, since we're finishing up Vayikra. Now we're getting to Bechukosai, the last chapter. Okay? Now, it begins with a lot of rewards, and we're going to find out how to get the rewards in a second. And then it goes into a lot of what we call the klalas. So I don't like the word curses, so I'm not going to use it. Let's just call it consequences. And I'm going to talk about the relationship between why it goes from brachas to klalas in a moment. Offer a maybe a, maybe a different uh, explanation for that. But, but I was really super intrigued by the following. Now listen, I'm going to read to you in English at the beginning. If you will follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them, then I will provide your rains in their time, and the land will give its produce, and the tree of the field will give its fruit. Awesome. But I noticed something super cool. Now, you have to know something. The, the, the verses, in other words, how long a verses, a pasuk in the Torah, was, that's divine. That's, that's either from the sages or from God, but that's, that's, that is, that's a Jewish thing. Chapters, like, what, like the parshas of the week, also from the sages. But like chapter 23, chapter 24, from the non-Jewish bookmaker publisher printers of the day. Okay? So, so there's, what I'm trying to say is, is that when a verse ends, that, that's, 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 that's holy, that's within the, the Jewish Torah Scenario, okay? So, I just read you an if-then statement. Okay? If you do this, then you're going to get those blessings. Now listen to this. This like kind of blew my mind. Let me read you the whole first passage. Remember, we're dealing with an if-then construct. Okay? You ready for this? Here's the first Pasuk, which is an organic unity, as, as decreed by the Torah. If you will follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them. End of the passage. (laughs) It's just the if, it's not the then. I think that's really cool. Like, what is going on there? What? That's a thought? If you follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them, finished. Okay, everyone. Have a good day. (laughs) We'll see you tomorrow. Get some sleep. (laughs) Wait. How is, what is, why did God end the first passage there without completing the thought? So, So I want to, this is my thought, I want to suggest the following. If you will follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them, it's going to list some blessings that are going to come. But the reality is it stops there because there is no limit to the blessings. There There is no limit to the blessings that will come. And that's why there are no specifics mentioned. Because there's going to be a certain... Um there's going to be a certain arrangement of the way the blessings are going to manifest just just because there's a physical reality that it's got to conform to. But really the blessings are absolutely endless. But now because we've got a physical world, God has to sort of select some things that will happen. But that's just almost like that's not the full picture. And to let us know that that's not the full picture, God is ending that thought before he gets to any of the specifics. Because it's just too beyond. 
Okay, that's, that's thought number one. Then I will provide your rains in their time, and the land will give its produce, and the tree of the field will give its fruit. So, so one of the things that is, I think, super cool about this is that if you learn Torah, by the way, Rashi and quoting uh, Torah's Kahanim, um, says that what this means, if you will follow my decrees, it's not talking about just in general, all the mitzvahs, even though it seems like it's talking about all the mitzvahs, it's specifically talking about Torah study. Okay, Torah study is really the, the trigger. And not just Torah study, you have to um, toil in Torah. So what does that mean? What's the difference between Torah study and this game-changer notion of toiling in Torah? Because that seems to be the thing that triggers these blessings, okay? So I'll tell you, if you, if you come to hear a Torah speech or you listen to a Torah lecture, whatever it is, there's great merit for that. It's, it's very good. But it doesn't compare to toiling in Torah. Toiling in Torah means that you take what you've heard and you work with it. Okay? Toil is usually associated with the land, tilling the land. So what, what, what toiling means vis-a-vis farming is you're not just like showing up on the field and say spreading seeds everywhere. You actually have a shovel and you're digging in the ground in order to make room for the seeds to be able to get underground and then you're covering over the seeds so that they can grow and then you're watering them. That's called toiling. So do you see the difference? It's, it's all the difference in the world between just showing up on the field and throwing seeds in every direction or taking a shovel and actually bending down and digging and then walking another few feet and bending down and digging. That's what you have to do with thoughts of Torah. So what does that mean, just to relate it back to actually thinking about Torah? That means that after you leave this talk or whatever it is, or maybe during the talk, you know, depending on the person, you'll lock on to say at least one idea and you'll ask yourself, what did he, what did he just say? And then you'll repeat it to yourself. He said the following. Wait, 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 say it again, say it again. And then you'll say it again to yourself. Oh, okay, what does that mean? I thought I knew what it meant, but what does that actually mean? And then you start asking yourself questions on it. And then you try to come up with some answers. And then you try to sync what you've just learned with everything you've learned your entire life. See, what I heard, one of the transformational things that I heard from Reb Shlomo was he said, with every new piece of Torah that you learn, it's a brand new Torah. And what I think that he meant by that was that you have to take each new piece of Torah that you learn and you have to see everything that you've learned up until now through the prism of that new piece of information. Which means, by the way, you have to have all of your learning in front of you at all times. And now you're seeing everything that you know through a new perspective. This is called toiling in Torah. Okay, or is one aspect of it. I'm just giving you one aspect of it. This is the type of stuff that you can do while you're sitting down and walking on your way and stuff like that. Okay? But this is this is this is already on the level of toiling. Now, if you do this, it's gonna rain when it's supposed to rain. Now remember, rain was a life and death situation because we were all agrarian. Like there were there were cities, but Everyone was basically farmers, which means rain in its right time was life and death. Okay, so it was really, really important. Now, how could it be I open up a book and I'm like trying, I'm trying to understand what this passage is saying and everything like that and relating it to everything that I know and all the rest, and that's going to cause it to rain? How, what is the connection between those two things in terms of the laws of nature? So now we're getting a very deep insight of what the laws of nature actually are. Because it says that God created the entire world out of the Torah. Which means that the mitzvahs are like, imagine like veins running through an organ, right? 
The mitzvahs are like the veins running through the organ, which is the world, which means that if you tap into the mitzvahs, you are actually influencing and activating the whole of the structure. So yeah, you mean you tell me that I'm going to learn some Torah and it's going to rain? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because everything is absolutely connected. There's a whole network of energy built into the world, which is the Torah construct. God looked into the Torah and made the world. He made the world out of the Torah. Right? When it was just on the level of energy, before it was even in print, before it was a scroll, before there was even a world. Okay. So, so, so let's go further. As you, it says, if you will walk in my decrees, and so the sages say, what does it mean to walk in God's decrees? If we're saying that the decrees that we're talking about is toiling in Torah study, walking in God's decrees mean that you're going to go over the course of your life from more advanced subject to more advanced subject. That's walking in the decrees. All right? Now, as you understand the world more deeply, the world that you inhabit changes around you. I'll give you an example. Reb Shlomo famously in the story, if you don't know it, go on YouTube and, and, and look up uh, The Holy Hunchback. Okay, Just type in the words on YouTube, The Holy Hunchback. And uh, you'll hear this story beautifully told by Reb Shlomo. So the Piyasesna Rebbe, the Eish Kodesh, the, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, said, used to tell his, his students, the greatest thing that you can do in the world is to do someone else a favor. Now, I give that as an example because this was one of the geniuses, one of the holiest people in the entire world. Right? From the dynasty of Koshnitz. So, you know, if a five-year-old told me, you know, it's so great, you know, it's the best, thing, the best, best thing in the world if you do someone else a favor. If I heard that from a five-year-old, I'd go, you know, that's pretty good advice from a five-year-old. That's pretty smart. But you're telling me that you're hearing this from one of the tzaddikim of the world? What world is he inhabiting that he knows this secret? Knowing the entire Torah, knowing the entire Zohar, knowing the entire everything. That after knowing the entire everything, he's telling you the greatest thing that you can do is someone else a favor? That means that really everything is just boils down to who I'm in front of at this second. And if I can somehow transact some love or chesed in this moment, that actually is me optimizing like everything? It's deep. As you travel through life and you go from more advanced subject to more advanced subject, the world changes around you. Okay, so it stands to follow that as the world changes around you, that you also change. You know, what bothered us five years ago hopefully isn't bothering us now. The little things. I used to be such a jerk when it came to, like, you know, someone's telling a story where I happen to have been present. And they'll say, yeah, and then there were 200 people there. Dude, I was there. There were, like, 30 people. Used to, things like that used to make me crazy. You know what? 200 people there, 20 people there, the 400 people there. What difference is it? 
all of a sudden, like, you're the attendance police? <laughs> Let it go. Someone gets the details wrong? All right. If they're telling you the formula to cure cancer, you can, you can interrupt <laughs> if you know the right answer. talking about who directed, you know, Cool Hand Luke. You know, you got to be a genius. Really? So we change. The world changes around us. And we're able to really maximize just all the light that's just swinging, just swinging around us. 